You're listening to Love is the Message with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert. Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, sound systems, the dance floor and counterculture. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as always, my friend Tim Lawrence. Hello. Hello. And we're going to carry on today talking about uh, Afro-psychedelia. And what we're going to talk about first today is the way in which the gospel music tradition sort of feeds into and resonates with a psychedelic sensibility in certain ways. So Tim, why don't you start us off on that topic? Yeah, well, we kind of, uh, whilst we were planning for, uh, I guess it was last week's episode, um, a few weeks ago, we, we sort of stumbled into this idea, really, about the, this kind of implicit connection between, between gospel music uh, and elevated states of consciousness, alternative states of consciousness, spiritual states of consciousness, and uh, the idea of psychedelia. And uh, it wasn't one that I particularly thought of before. Um, but it does seem to be quite a rich area to, to think through, um, especially kind of within this, within this theme of Afro-psychedelia. Um, I mean, obviously, psychedelic refers to the, you know the use of hallucinogenic drugs uh, to trigger these kind of these alternative uh, states of consciousness. And there are probably many people who identify as being religious uh, and as Christian uh, who may object to kind of an, asso- an association with psychedelics and psychedelia. Um, so obviously we're not out to kind of offend anyone or upset anyone, but we want to explore whether there's, there's some kind of connection here. Um, it's probably worth starting with a kind of with reflecting on the kind of what the, where the term psychedelic actually comes from, um, which is kind of ancient, uh, the combination of ancient Greek words, um, which is, you know, psyche is soul, and I think it's uh, well the the second part uh, delic dilon is to make visible or to reveal, yes. and then it's and it translates as to mind manifesting. Yeah. Um, so something's going on here that we want to think about, and you know, so far we've we've um, talked about black musicians in the last episode. Whose music contributes to this kind of an aesthetic of the psychedelic. Robert Johnson, Sangra, uh, Hendrix, John Coltrane, and Alice Catrain. I mean, we're going to go on to explore how musicians who lived outside of the United States um, shaped what we're kind of thinking as a kind of Afro-psychedelic sound. But it's really interesting to also, to, before we kind of leave the United States, to spend a bit of time thinking about gospel and, and this association. You know, I think it's also worth noting, just kind of before we get, you know, into sort of gospel itself, that there pre the emergence of organized religion there was this long history of what, what may be called spiritual practices uh, that predated the emergence of christianity that did draw on psychedelics there's no question there's no question there is a well documented history of the use of you know psychedelic or entheogenic substances in shamanic traditions especially in parts of central and south america and parts of africa there's also some kind of this, like textual evidence in both ancient India and ancient Greece 
of people apparently engaging in some kind of ritual practices with probably using some sort of hallucinogens. But it, we don't know. Like Nobody knows for sure. They weren't just drunk on wine. And the, the, the archaeological evidence and the, or the textual evidence for any particular claims that are made about any particular substance those people might have been using is really thin. And there's been like wave after wave of theories of people claiming to have figured out what they were taking at Elysius and what they were taking, what the Indians were taking as Soma. And it's been claimed it was mushrooms, could have been mushrooms, been claimed it was ephedrina, is this basically a plant that has sort of natural amphetamines, could have been that, could have been some kind of ergotamine derivative, could have been some kind of ergotamine, some kind of wine, they think. They think they might have found some way of making sort of wine or beer with ergot, um, with grain that had ergot on it that would have somehow, you know, created sort of psychedelic effects, but without poisoning you. But it, this, but it's all speculative. It's all speculative. So it's definitely true. We can definitely say, yes, there is, there are, there are these visionary traditions that used like chemicals that we would now regard as psychedelic. But the only places we know for sure, there's definitely a tradition of taking drugs that we would now consider psychedelic is those indigenous traditions in Africa and, and Central and South America. Okay, so that's fine. We can be sure that it happened there, and we can yeah. suppose that there's a possibility that the foundation of what became yeah, totally. Europe in ancient Greece, um, yeah. and through these these you know um, naturally occurring products that can be kind of gathered, um, that people were finding ways, especially in pre-industrial societies. Um, to enter into alternative states of consciousness in which they could kind of experience forms of collective joy um, and dance and and sing and, and make music um, and and explore the kind of uh, their, their the place in the you know the complex and wondrous and interconnected universe. Yeah, so, totally. so there are ways that people have spirit. Anyway, the, maybe the more important point is that people were exploring ways to have these these spiritual revelatory experiences, and that these predated the emergence of organized religion. Um, and when organized religion uh, first started, kind of well, they predate uh, monotheism. I mean, they were pretty organized. Well, that as well. The, these yeah. guys, yeah, these the, the, those religions are themselves organized. Sorry, you're right. Not organized, but institutionalized. I should say then. Yes, yeah. uh, maybe that's different. And anyway, this is, you know, the Barbara Ehrenreich, you know, book looks at this as well. And part of her argument about the the emergence of the church is that initially she doesn't really get into psychedelics, of course, but initially um, she looks at the she, one of the things she does is she looks at the way that the early church needed to, to incorporate elements of song and dance and what she and collective joy. Uh, in order to actually be viable, because if they didn't provide people with this kind of experience, no one would have bothered going to church. Um, yeah, yeah. It was largely through the rise, um, in particular, of, of Protestantism, that you know the shape of kind of the religious experience kind of changed, and it shifted away from one of collective joy and, and moved to one in which uh, you know life was about suffering. We are, we are, we are born sinners. And that if we work hard and and deprive ourselves of pleasure, we'll be rewarded in the afterlife. Uh, that became the kind of central organizing principle of kind of Christianity in much of Northern Europe in particular and, and the United States. Yeah, and still to this day, the most hardcore 
Christian sects that trace their roots back to that moment in the 17th century, like they they consider music and dancing to be sinful, then there's no music allowed in church. Exactly, exactly. So one of the things that's kind of extraordinary about about gospel, in a sense, is the um, is that it kind of emerged partly within this within this context. It was uh, it was African sla- African American slaves who were con- continuing to observe their uh, practices, which had kind of originated and been and been cultivated in Africa, uh, having arrived in the United States um, and had worked as slaves were put under a form of sort of social and cultural control when they were made to give up their their indigenous expressive religions and practices and were forced instead to become Christians. And within this context, we have this scenario in which the music that was being heard in this context were traditional hymns, which were largely without rhythm, were somewhat solemn, didn't involve a kind of use of, or an experience, particularly of the body. The whole of the design of a church might be to have a sort of ethereal, sort of non-bodily experience, in a sense. Uh, the body almost kind of disappears in these kind of huge, vast spaces. And the, the choirs, when oft, I think the, when, when choirs appeared in, in these spaces, they were often hidden from view. It was like the music was supposed to kind of emerge in a kind of non-physical way, a divi- you know, which evoked the divine but also didn't engage the, the human body. Um, so there was this kind of ethereal aesthetic that dominated, and somewhat solemn at times as well, I'd say, the Christian sort of musical tradition of that particular moment. What the African-Americans did through gospel was, was trying to transform this kind of this, this institution or the music that was being experienced into this institution into something that kind of merged, you know, with African traditions, and so they introduced, you know, gospel, the, the 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 music that came out of this Christian context was infused with call and response, uh, lots of hand clapping, and also interestingly, a lot of repetition. Repetition made it easier for people to participate who couldn't read. One of the things about hymns is that you need to be able to kind of read the hymns in order to be able to kind of sing them. Um, many African American slaves weren't even being obviously weren't being educated. Repetitious call and response structures of gospel also enabled enabled participation. And I think the other thing to note is that, you know, like jazz and like the blues and like rhythm and blues, uh, is that gospel kind of was was rooted in this kind of African-American experience, which was defined by slavery, it was defined, you know, racism and poverty. And yet the response uh, was to always seek out forms of release or catharsis or joy, transcendence and escape. Uh, you know, there's always this thing that I'm sure you say to students, and I'm sure you do as well, but it's like, you know, when do you, how do you feel when you listen to the blues? Does it make you feel blue? Does it make you feel sad? And of course it doesn't really, you know, listening to the blues actually makes you feel better. There's, you know, intrinsic to the kind of practice of the blues is a resolution. You know, you resolve a problem, you resolve a musical problem. Rhythm and blues, which obviously grew out of the blues, kind of is a kind of is again, it's kind of rhythmic and it's collective, it's soulful, it's sort of hopeful. It's got a sense of the, the real and a sense of struggle, but there's a way of resolving that. That's what. So this is the this is one of the maybe the ongoing connective kind of quality of you know much of African American music during the kind of late nineteenth and, and most of the twentieth century. Is this kind of you know is is seeking out forms of release and catharsis and collective joy. 
the gospel we know does this differently to, to the blues, whereas blues might, you know, uh, not only musically but thematically, whereas blues might turn to sort of, you know, drink and sex and who knows what so in order to kind of resolve misery and difficulty. The premise of gospel is that the soul, soul is enslaved, you know, by sin and by racism, you know, but instead of seeking out carnal pleasure, uh, it seeks to transcend this condition through faith, through setting the soul free, um, through, you know, addressing God, through music, through its religious kind of uh, concern, has, has intrinsic to it this kind of transcendent kind of objective that aligns it, if you like, with something which is kind of arguably, you know, psychedelic. So well, I'll add a bit, let's hear one bit of music and then okay. I'll add a bit more. To All that. right. Okay. Well, let's start off with um, Mahalia Jackson, um, A City Calls Heaven. Yeah, it's always just it's always extraordinary hearing Mahalia Jackson. She's got one of the great voices of the 20th century. And the stuff is very moving and it it's really it is a really incredible story I think the way in which gospel, you know, it's, it sort of emerges out of the spirituals and it develops you know really in tandem with the development of the the Baptist the Black Baptist churches in the states and if you get into the detail of it it's really fascinating because there's by the sort of second half of the 20th century, you get to a situation in which musicological debates are kind of get bound up with theological debates, like within different like um, sections of the Black Baptist Church. And the whole status of music is obviously, you know, the fact that music is so central to, and music and to some extent sort of dance, although a lot of the time it's just sort of collective swaying is so central to that to the religious practice it, it marks a significant break with the protestant tradition or mo- mo- mainstream protestantism but it's also significant i mean i think i mean my account of this you know and in some of the work i've done i think one of the things about mainstream protestantism is it kind of it it, it puts into effect a set of ideas that you can trace back through saint augustine and then indeed to the sort of the ancient greeks or philosophers like plato ideas which were not really very popular like in ancient Greece or you know weren't very popular in the sort of you know in the middle ages or the dark ages but they get sort of taken up and then they they get enacted institutionally by the Puritans the early Protestants and the Protestant church and they're ideas which are basically anti-music and and anti-body so there's a sort of version of Christianity which belongs to a particular a particular strand of western thinking which is very you know, it's antibody, it's anti-music, and it has a big impact within sort of the Christian tradition after the Protestant Reformation, as you were saying. And then so and you can really see this kind of African-American sort of sensibility, like coming in and infusing sort of black music and religious practice in America at that time. And you can see it as as really, you know, promoting a, a version of Christianity which is fundamentally philosophically different, you know, which is it precisely in that it doesn't completely reject you know physicality and it doesn't reject or as you say 
collective joy. But of course, the, the boundaries of that are really contentious, like within the black and gospel community. So when soul music emerges as, as a synthesis of R&B and gospel at the beginning of the 60s, there's a huge amount of kind of resistance to it because it's seen as going too far in the direction of carnality and physicality. And yeah. So, yeah, it is really interesting. Because it talks about sex. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's just, and it's understood that the music is just formally erotic in nature. You know, they talk about sex, but it's also, you know, you're supposed to grind your hips while dancing to it. And I, yeah, you're, I think you're right. And it's a really interesting point about, you know, religious music and, I mean, having a sort of affinity with psychedelic ideas. I mean, of course, we, we use this term psychedelic because we are basically unreconstructed sort of, you know, 60s, 70s people. <laughs> but, you know, but the fashionable term for what we call psychedelics from the sort of 90s onwards and still still with some people it is, is entheogen or entheogenic, which is a term that means God within or mm. like, gen, you know, producing God, the experience of God within. Mm. And of course, like one of the debates historically in, in the sort of psychedelic community is a debate between the people who think, well, basically, indeed, you're manifesting some property of your mind or your brain with psychedelic experience. Mm. And, and, a, and, a, and a really, in some sense, is a more radical tradition, which says, no, actually, you are actually contacting God with this stuff. That's, it's a tool for having an experience of God or having an experience of the divine. Uh, and in fact, you know, I mean, thinking about the, you know, the American American Christianity, that notion of, of you know, of the, you know, psychedelic drugs as entheogens, as as having in, being entheogenic tools, it was around in the fifties and into the early sixties amongst sort of radical Christians. So some of the first people sort of popularizing uh, sort of psilocybin coming out of Harvey's experiments at, I mean, sorry, Leary's experiments at Harvard, and then at LSD as sort of, you know, positive, you know, po- potentially positive forces. Some of them were the kind of the young Unitarian ministers, like in the very early 60s. There was a group of these Unitarian ministers who'd been involved in the um, experiments, you know, in which psilocybin had induced mystical experiences in people and were very heavily promoting them i don't think any of them were involved with the black church i think they were all white unitarians but they were all but it's but it's certainly true it's certainly true it's like um it's true that it's not only sort of or even primarily actually like indian mysticism which people are interested in psychedelics are attracted to it's not really until the sort of mid 60s that you start to it starts to become pretty well established that like like if you're into tripping and you want to give it some kind of a religious or mystical shape then you're going to turn to asian uh, contemplative practice and religion so in the 50s it's much more what it's much more common for people to be understand it who are into the, the scattered you know networks of people who are into sort of psychedelics it's much more common for them actually to sometimes see them see the experience in christian terms so yeah so it is really so yeah i think you're right i mean i think you're completely right yeah and i think there is this real and the fact that gospel you know is music which is supposed to contribute to contribute to a sort of collective visionary experience like it it's not really surprising from that point of view that it ends up becoming a big element of you know it ends up becoming a big element of disco and it ends up becoming a big element of house music really i think well i think there's um i mean if we want to kind of go to little i mean little richard who came up through the church i think and uh his ecstatic whoops kind of were you know gospel oriented and uh apparently um, drawn from listening to the gospel singer marion williams 
Um, and Mahalia Jackson was kind of, you know, acknowledges this kind of this link as well, really, that this kind of this sense of, you know, ecstatic almost, you know, I mean, it's obviously bodily, but it's also kind of it's it's expressing a kind of sense of a, a collective joy. And it's one that was kind of rooted in this kind of re- this kind of religious institutional experience um, that Mahalia Jackson sort of said, look, you know, uh, the quote is, I think, I believe the blues and jazz and even the rock and roll stuff got their beat from the sanctified church. Yeah, right. Without music, life would be a mistake. I mean, I guess one of the questions is to what extent were these forms of collective joy being expressed in other parts of, you know, the United States or Western society during this period of, let's say, the 1930s through to the 1960s. These, these practices, these ways of being are being more or less removed from kind of mainstream society. I and mean, she sort of, sort of starts, she, her argument, and I'm not sure how, you know, this might need some more thought, um, at least for, my, for me, but um, she kind of sort of sees counterculture as being the movement, well, actually rock and roll moving into counterculture as being the, the movement that starts to regenerate collective joy. And uh, if we look at, you know, indeed rock and roll, we've got little Richard screaming based on what he's experiencing in this church. So The mains, the, the sort of on a mass scale, the white engagement with black musical forms as a way of experiencing like bodily release and sort of collective joy, it's really jazz in the 20s when it starts, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a, that's a good point. So, um, I mean, I suppose, you know, that becomes somewhat, somewhat fleeting, arguably. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it doesn't. It's a good point, actually. I mean, there's this moment of sort of. I mean, this, I mean, the twenties. You know, mm, exactly. This, this extraordinary moment. One day we're going to end up doing a whole series about the twenties. I, I remember. <laughs> I remember us talking about this like about fifteen years ago, saying, "Oh wow, imagine living in the twenties. That would have been that would have been the greatest." Because yeah, it's the moment of the Russian Revolution, of modernism, of surrealism, of but it's also extraordinary moment of kind of sexual liberation. It's the moment, great moment of gay liberation in in places like Germany, and then of yeah, then it all gets shut down. I mean, the fascist reaction and the conservative reaction, and e- even in Britain and America, you know, the sort of reactionary gender politics and the kind of imposition of the ideal of the housewife and yeah, yeah. You know, and there's exactly, the backlash. Exactly. There's a backlash against the Harlem Renaissance and the kind of reimposition of Jim Crow and all this stuff. Yeah, and then, so I guess rock, I mean the thing about rock and roll is it sort of sustains itself in some it way. Builds, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Ends up having this wider effect across across the culture. So that's sort of uh, yeah. that's good actually. I've always been a bit bothered by that history. I feel like <laughs> I've got that clearer. I've never had that properly clear. Um, how would I think about that before? I think I've got that clearer now. Good. All right. Do you want to carry on with the show or do you feel like we've like done enough? <laughs> <laughs> this is, all right. Let's hear some more gospel. Well, no, I want to, yeah, I, I do. I want to play some stable singers and then I want to play another. We want, I want to play one more gospel as well. But I just wanted to like make this, I think it's kind of interesting to, I mean, first of all, we need to point out that Mahali, Mahalia Jackson was, was a very prominent figure in the civil rights movement. There's uh, Craig Werner, Berner, who's written this really great book, A Change Is Gonna Come, uh, basically sort of says she sort of had a kind of almost an equal role, an equal prominence to Martin Luther King. Um, if King, so he writes, if King gave the civil rights movement a vision, Mahalia Jackson gave it a voice. Uh, she appeared at, you know, many kind of key rallies, I sang at a number of these rallies. City Called Heaven was one of the songs that um, she sang um, as, part of, as part of this movement. Yeah, well, it's really an extraordinary moment as well because, you know, the, the the classic kind of radical critique of 
religion. I mean, I mean, you know, Marx famously says, you know, uh, religion is the opiate of the people. It numbs people's senses. It mm. eases the pain and it mm. de-radicalizes them. And that was also that was a critique made by black radicals themselves, you know, of the role of the church and Christianity played in black culture in the first half of the 20th century. You know, black radicals allied to, you know, things like the Communist Party of the USA, involved in uh, movements like the, you know, Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, were often very critical in the first half of the 20th century of what they saw as the role of gospel in basically, indeed, encouraging black people to think, well, yeah, you can tolerate racism and Jim Crow because you're going to go to heaven. And then, but then what it is, the, but what happens in this post-war period is that the black churches become the organizer, the, the key organizing backbone of the civil rights movement and of resistance. And these songs like City Called Heaven, they become metaphors for the possibility of social transformation in the present. You know, it becomes, exactly. you know, it's, um, yeah, which yeah. is really sort of extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it's like it, there's this. So this is where you know we get to this place where there's the the gospel that's being performed is about taking your place beside Jesus. You know, the the joy that you know that kind of is experienced in in a church, entering into that kind of that sort of experiential frame of mind, group ecstasy, uh, in which vocal the vocal. You know, one of the things about gospel is it's, it gets to the point where the vocals empty out of meaning. There's just a kind of a sense of kind of joy, you know, this ecstatic joy that's coming through in, in the through the voice. But then there's like almost the equally transformative idea that that the city called heaven is being able to sort of sit at the front of the bus, or there might be racial equality. That's part of what's what's also going on in this in this music, and I think in, in this movement moment, and in this movement really. I mean, it's the black church as the perhaps one of you know one of if not the key organizing locations for you know the african-american public you know more you know african-american more african-americans go to church go to black church and go to you know any other kind of institution in society um so it's you know it does take on this kind of really key role within the civil rights movement but i just i suppose this is I was kind of struck by this idea that you know you can you dream of you know you might dream of, of how blissful it will be if you go to heaven, and you can dream of how blissful it will be if you have equality before the law. Um, it's kind of it's it's you know I don't want to say it's it's comical um, that you know, <laughs> that should be, but there's something kind of psyched you know um, you know psychedelic almost about you know mind altering states of consciousness are required. To enter into, you know, to enter into, you know, equality before the law, as well as to kind of, you know, yeah, it's about envisioning the, the possibility of change, isn't absolutely. it? Yeah, absolutely. But radical, radical change as well. Yeah. Let's play uh, a bit more music. Um, so I thought we'd now listen to the staple singers. Uh, this may be the last time. Maybe in the morning, well, Lord, love, and maybe no. Yeah. 
so I just I just wanted to I just really love the Staples Singers actually. Whenever I'd kind of you know do some sort of do, do a lecture on gospel with students, uh, I just found myself always really enjoying playing the Staples Singers. Um, the, the group emerged in the late 1940s and 1950s and it became one of the most influential gospel groups. Uh, and they have this kind of gospel folk style. Um, uh, this may be the last time was was an early recording from their second album, which I think is called Swing Low. I should check that. Uh, came out in the early, very early 1960s. And it's just like, if we're thinking about what I, you know, what we might think of as psychedelic music, I think this kind of just, just like hits, you know, really um, hits the sweet spot, if you like, for me. There's something about, it's the kind of the intensity of the, you know, this kind of chorus of voices, the har- harmonies of them, and this kind of very reverberant um, kind of guitar playing. It simmers um it kind of it feels like it echoes it, there's a lot of movement in it um which you know the minimalistic kind of instrumentation singing kind of allows for um it does feel you know very spirit very sort of open to sort of a, a spiritual transformative experience so anyway that was a bit of a bit it was just a it just something i felt like in this show we, i wanted to play something that kind of along those lines but what what i really wanted to get to uh, eventually is is indeed what you're saying is kind of where the where gospel sort of seems seems to meet disco uh, in the early 1970s uh, or proto-disco whatever we want to call it um i mean i guess one point that i think i should probably make just for myself anyway is that i've you know haven't always had the easiest relationship with gospel i mean i'm not a christian uh, I'm Jewish, but I can have long, for long, a very long time, considered myself to be sort of secular. So, if there's sort of lyrics about kind of you know about Jesus, um, it's not something that I'd automatically be drawn to. I mean, there is this record that we both know very well, "A Stand on the Word" by the Celestial Choir, which was a big record for David, uh, which was recorded by a, ch- a church group in a in a, a Brooklyn. Brooklyn Church, where Walter Gibbons, the kind of one of the, the great remixes of the 1970s uh, and early 1980s, but primarily the 1970s, was going to after he became a, bo- a born again Christian. And we all like love that. Re- I think I've never seen a record get such a consistently good response uh, whenever it's played. And yet it's got these lyrics that, you know, we, we probably might not kind of, you know, straightforwardly you know following the word you know follow the word of god is not what we generally go around suggesting people should do (laughs) (laughs) it's always kind of it's it's very strange the phenomenon of of that record but it's yeah so there's something interesting going on because there's i mean there obviously there's also works right Uh, i mean so one other little anecdote i want to just throw in quickly about in in addition to my sort of not not being entirely ease sometimes with the lyrical content of of some gospel is this kind of little story that becomes comes right at the beginning of of love saves the day basically and it's that the sanctuary this 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 discotheque that effectively became this transformative dance space almost to the week when david held his first sort of Valentine's Day party, uh, the Love Saves the Day party in February 1970. Uh, the sanctuary, that more or less around exactly the same time, was taken over by these these two entrepreneurs and turned into a kind of the first public discotheque to welcome queers into its midst. But one of the great, one of the, the, the compelling things about the sanctuary is that it was a discotheque located in a church and that the DJ booth was located in the pulpit. 
and it automatically evokes this idea of, of disco and of the, the DJs emerging as a sort of modern day sort of secular priest or, you know, or an alternative sort of shamanic figure. And, you know, and people going to these, these kind of, you know, these open, in some respects, kind of awesome uh, spaces uh, of the church and turning this into a place for a different kind of spiritual experience, one which is doing this thing which we've referred to a few times in, in this episode already, this kind of this regeneration of the practice of, of collective joy. Um, so the, the, the dividing line between going to a church and experiencing collective joy in the church and then that church becoming a disco and the DJ stepping in for the priest and the congregation just instead of kind of generating their collective joy on a Sunday morning, doing it on a Saturday night, that line is quite thin, I think. So I just thought I wanted to, you know, just wind up this little gospel section by playing, I thought, you know, another record that I think David played. I'm doing this research, a bit more research into him now. Um, and, you know, we've already played Dorothy Morrison's Rain, I think, on an earlier show, and that was a big record for David. And, and I also, I know that he was really into this group called The Voices of East Harlem, uh, which was uh, an inner city kind of action project uh, that was created in East Harlem in 1969. Uh, and it just sort of played and formed in local colleges and local benefits and usually had about 20 members aged between 12 and 21. I think one of their first performances was for Mayor John Lindsay, who was this Republican mayor that was really quite interestingly progressive figure. Uh, he, he attended the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969. Uh, and was and was kind of came to be re-elected largely through the support indeed of the black and latin community so anyway the voices of east harlem kind of debuted uh, in, in 1970 with this album right on be free this was another example of there were really there's loads of them around at this particular moment where gospel is just kind of you know it's like a civil rights movement effectively with its lyrics and these you know lyrics that are about being free just kind of you know appeal have a certain countercultural appeal of course um anyway the record that i wanted to play is uh called shaker life uh i think it lasts for about six minutes and it's just kind of like a non-stop you know cheering and clapping and screaming and it's very up tempo so it's, re- it's really it's really quite different from the other two records that we played basically the mahalia jackson a city called heaven and the early staple singers this may be the last time this is the point where you know, gospel has entered into this very um, forthright, celebratory, hands in the air, screaming and singing kind of uh, mode. It's it's interesting. It's interesting. I'm thinking about this now. This is another one. I'm conscious now. This is one of those things I could have hovered around thinking through properly for years and haven't quite thought through properly, actually. So I'm not totally clear where it's coming from because soul because it's faster than it's basically faster than soul music. I guess it's borrowing. It's sort of borrowing from James Brown funk, isn't it? I don't know. Where is it getting the speed from? Because it really speeds up. I mean, no, this, well, I was listening. 
was listening to this Nina Simone because she does a lot of gospel recordings as well, and she's got this live recording of Cinnamon, which uh, yeah, I bought the other day. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. it's eleven minutes, and it's, it's an amazing performance in so many ways. But one of the things that stands out is just how fast it is. It goes much faster than soul music. I yeah, mean, there right. is some, some jazz, obviously, some jazz. It's moves jazz. Very, very quickly. Yeah. It's coming from jazz. No, you're right. It's coming, because if it's coming, you're right. It's coming from jazz. It's coming from sort of Latin jazz more than anything else, I think. Thank you. That's the only place you can get that. Well, it's about- or, or, or it comes from within the church. You know, this is the other possibility is that this is the place where, you know, con- people congregate on a weekly. This is why they always thought they're often particularly significant. It's a weekly congregation and yeah, therefore it builds something. And that's the that's what the church is doing, probably more than you know, most, if not all other jazz, jazz venues, perhaps. Well, that's true. Um, it's it's it, where the, and, and, that, and it builds to this frenzy, right? It always, that's the purpose is it builds to this frenzy and that must, you know, and there's, there's lots of hand clapping. Uh, yeah, there is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I th- you know, maybe jazz gets it from the church. You know, that's the other possibility. I, I'm, I'm, it's a hypothesis. No, it's a good hypothesis. I mean, it's a good point. Yeah, I just because we've been talking about do talking about we've been saying we would talk about gospel on the show for ages, and for years we've been commenting and we've said to students, "Say gospel is really important." But I think it's sort of even. I think it might be even more important than we've given it credit for. It might be, you know, it it might be really sort of fundamental to the emergence of, of sort of dance music as we understand it. Well, it is in, in as much as it informs, has so much in, ha, so much influence on soul music. Then, then clear, you know, on some level, absolutely. You got to remember also that I mean, just to state something that's incredibly obvious, but we haven't mentioned yet, is that most of the you know, for want of a better term, disco divas who ended up def, you know largely defining the sound of disco, they were all church. You know, they were all almost all of them went through you know gospel gospel choirs yeah of course i think that's well known but the sort of the standard account the standard account is disco comes straight out of soul and it but it borrows from gospel and that's even the account we gave basically in the last series and now i'm thinking well is that even right is it is it as much the case that it's an it's a sort of in you know in sort of imminent formation coming out of gospel you know well one of the things that's yeah that i like about disco is that you know a lot of tracks deliberately reach a crescendo they built especially the 12 inch single that has time to space itself out and you know have the verse chorus have a you know have a bit of an instrumental break have the actual break itself and then builds to this crescendo and that crescendo i identify you know i think i think that comes from gospel uh, yeah it does Uh, yeah well i I mean there's an orchestral tradition as well which we possibly shouldn't you know but it's a different it's um yeah, that's a different kind of crescendo, maybe. Or it's definitely structured musically, anyway. Tune in, turn on, get, get down. down. Well, I think this is really, I mean, we've, you've made a really persuasive case, I think, about the importance of gospel. And we talked about Alice Coltrane last week, and this is a, it's a point that's made in Jana Brown's book, Black Utopias, that I mentioned last time. She draws a very strong uh, connection between the forms of sort of utopian black spirituality that you've been talking about we've been talking about and and um 
the spirituality and and indeed the utopianism of of people like Alice Coltrane. Um, but um, the next track we were going to talk about, I think we're going to talk about love now, aren't we? So this is in musical terms. This is a bit of a you know sideways move, although. The name of the track we're going to talk about is one with a sort of biblical connotation. It's, the track is called Revelation, and it's by Love. Hey, you, child standing over there. Girl, you look so good. Yeah, you look all right. Hey, girl, you me calling your name. When you walk, see you drive me insane. Oh, you look so good when you're in my bed. So, love. This is Arthur Lee's band from LA. This track is released in 1966, so it's got a reasonable claim to be the first sort of acid rock uh, album. The the um the album is uh, it's Da Capo, isn't it, or is it Forever? Oh, yes, Da Capo. Da Capo is the album. Yeah, yeah. And um, in terms of Afro-psychedelia, alongside Hendrix, I mean, one of the people who, you know, the most obvious people to mention always is Arthur Lee. He's a he's a black musician from California, and his band, and he fronts this band, and mo- and most of the members of which aren't black, called Love, which is one of the original seminal sort of acid rock bands. And this is a, you know, this is like a, eight nine minute instrumental groove it's very sort of in, it's very intense uh david used to play it occasionally um it's been played at the loft you know on and off a, over the years is is sort of danceable but love I, <clears throat> for me love occupy a strange position in in the history of sort of acid rock and psychedelic music the coffin, the comment that's often made about love is that their lyrics are, you know, not were often not really aligned with the sort of um, naive embrace of you know, the, the flower power aspect of, of the counterculture. I mean, that's also often said about Jefferson Airplane, for example, who were um, the, one of the biggest bands from the Bay Area mm-hmm. acid rock scene. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's that. And it's often it's also said about the Doors, who are kind of contemporaries of love from LA. So I'm not sure it's as sort of unique. Uh, as is, is often made out when people are writing about any one of those acts. Um, <clears throat> I think I have a kind of weird relationship to this stuff. Actually, I'm not. I'm. I'm never. I can never quite get into love the same way I can really never quite get into the Doors. Um, I think it's. You know, I was born in San Francisco. And we left. I left when I was a baby. Like the first place I can remember being is North London. But I sort of, I'm always conscious. I had to, I have a strong affinity with things like the Grateful Dead and Country Joe and the Fish and that kind of Bay Area utopian acid rock. And I, and I do find the sort of slightly dark, sort of slightly alienated um, acid rock from LA. You know, it reminds me of the sort of aesthetic of, you know, Thomas Pynchon and, and, um, you know his first novel, the Loft, the Crying of Lot Forty Nine, which presents this very sort of dark, paranoid vision of American culture. It's the sort of Southern Californian world in which Reaganism is being incubated. I mean, Reagan is actually the governor of California at the time when all this is written, and I sort of I get it. I understand why it's um, 
people find it impressive and it, this is an impressive track it's just it's not at all an objective judgment on it i'm just always i'm always trying to figure out like why i can't quite get into it and i guess i think uh, i think that is why um i mean lee himself is this quite tortured figure you know who didn't have a very successful career after love made a couple of albums i mean their next album forever changes it's quite different um the tracks are all shorter um like a lot of bands i mean like you can think about pink floyd in the states at the time they're a band that are known for these kind of intense instrumental jams but the the perception is that that stuff doesn't sell commercially so you have to sell records with songs short songs but it's still you know it's very highly regarded that um forever changes i mean it's regarded is it, it always features in those kind of lists of the top 100 or 500 or whatever rock albums ever made you know it's an interesting i i think that kind of slightly dark la vibe i mean in a way you know you can read it as being sort of um you can you can read it or hear it if you like as being you know, expressing a, a sort of less naive relationship to, you know, to the counterculture, I mean, indeed to psychedelics and, and psychedelic culture. So, you know, the fact that, you know, psychedelic culture really didn't work out for loads of people. Like loads of people just found it difficult or they had mental health problems or it wasn't actually able to solve, you know, problems for either whether they were psychological, emotional, sociological or economic. It wasn't able to solve problems for people that would have required a more fundamental social, economic, sort of institutional set of changes. But I think, I mean, I guess as I already said, one of the things interesting to me is, you know, whenever you read somebody talking about the Jefferson Airplane or talking about love or talking about the doors, um, those are the three main ones I'm thinking of, then you sort of get these remarks being made. Whereas I would say, well, it's not really, I mean, it, if you've got three of the most significant bands of the time having this kind of relationship to this sort of, um, you know, reflexive attitude to, to the counterculture, then I think you have to say that, that that's not exceptional. You know, this reflexivity and scepticism about the limitations of psychedelia as a sort of political spiritual cultural strategy that they're, they're part of the counterculture i mean la was always I, la has has been one of the centers of hypercapitalism, you know since the 50s mm. and people know that and i i think that's why i think there's always this kind of edge there's this edge to it's more it'd be it's more accurate to talk about edge than to talk about darkness i mean obviously mm. you're right i mean at the time when they were they do this first album love and not singing songs that seem to be particularly sort of skeptical about a counterculture which is only just emerging and hasn't even been given that name yet but but and this track it is a very really compelling track you know and it's danceable and has this great kind of interplay between the sort of saxophones and the guitars but it gets very sort of i mean for me it's always it's like it's a bit too intense you know it's quite it, it has the kind of rock aggression which for example the guitar of like jerry garcia always avoids like there's no there's no aggression there's never any aggression in, in garcia's guitar playing it's as virtuosic and fluid as it becomes So an interesting sort of, well, an interesting comparison with that, but also an interesting sort of contrast is a track which also, I mean, it has some of the same qualities and I've I've played it DJing a couple of times and I'm always worried it's going to be too sort of aggressive. But 
for me, it, I really love it. Um, and it's Santana, uh, Toussaint de l'Ouverture. Now, Santana is like a Mexican, I mean, Carlos Santana is a Mexican American guitarist and his band Santana sort of over the course of the seventies and subsequently became an absolute sort of, um, I think a sort of platinum selling like American sort of big rock act. Um, but if they very much come out of this kind of acid rock milieu. And of course, I particularly love this track because it is named Toussaint de Louverture. Toussaint de Louverture was the leader of the Haitian revolution in the 1790s. He's the main character in, I say character, he's the main figure in the uh, book, The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, you know, the great, you know, the great black Marxist historian about the Haitian revolution. So it's a very deliberate expression of sort of anti-colonial, anti-imperialist politics uh, for a Mexican-American person to, to name a track this. And it's also, you know, it's a very compelling instrumental. And um, But just the fact of it existing, you know, it represents a sort of deliberate and an explicit sort of politicisation of acid rock, of which there are not that many examples, really. I mean, despite the fact they really did have a, they did have politics, especially people like the Dead did. Like it was all, it was very subtle. It was very sort of imminent. And they, so like calling a track Toussaint de l'Ouverture, I think, is just pretty extraordinary. It's interesting because obviously Santana is the kind of lead guitarist and the and the kind of key figure in, in the band, um, but there's a way in which the guitar is kind of incorporated into the kind of the, the rest of the in instrumentation of this record. That means that it's not kind of it's more. It's got. I mean, just compare it to R and B would be kind of a ridiculous thing to do. So I'm not going to do that. But there's this this transition happens as rock music kind of grows out of R&B where rock obviously uh, centralizes and forwards um, puts on a pedestal the kind of the lead guitar as well as, as the lead vocalist and that becomes something which uh, we you know is clearly part of the, the you know the love revelation and there's and it's not something that I've Oft, somehow or other find myself that drawn to I don't know if it's a performative thing a sort of an expression of individualistic virtuoso playing but it doesn't kind of quite I'm, I'm to me it's I'm I find I generally find myself more interested in the interplay of instrumentations when it's more conversational well, I'm saying it's the classic thing that the punks reacted against you know the idea of the guitar hero as exemplifying kind of macho masculine heroic individualism and it's true. It's an interesting. It's a really interesting point. I think I I do sort of think of Santana alongside a bit like Jerry Garcia, who I mentioned as being you know one of these guitar virtuosi. Who, but he's sort of he, he is. You always feel like he's listening to the rest of the band, and he's always, you know, it's not exactly. He's a virtuoso, but he's not a guitar hero in the kind of you know the the sense that people like Clapton would become, or in the sense even Hendrix is. I mean, Hen I mean the thing with Hendrix is like it's difficult. He's such a virtuoso; it's difficult for the rest of the band to sort of do anything really. Like, um, 
apart from back him. So, but um, but he is. But that's also part of how rock gets to be recorded and yeah. understood culturally. I think. Yeah, that's Whereas right. Whereas something yeah. else, I'm just saying, in this track in particular, something else is is going on. Like there are three percussionists. Yeah, there's three percussionists. There's a, there's a drummer and two percussionists, and then there's even some additional percussion in some of the records as well. So, and the good thing, because I, I was listening to it probably you know, a little bit earlier. Just listening in a really interested way, and it's like it's like oh no, that's that's not the guitar. That's that's a kind of organ, you know. That was the first instrument that you really hear, the first solo, and um, and the, and yeah, the guitar actually comes in at one minute fifty five. So it's very interesting. It's kind of every you know the stage is set by everyone else, and then when the guitar does come in, it doesn't sort of it doesn't sort of take over. It's incorporated into this, you know, very intricate, uh, very dynamic, syncopated percussion. That's uh, right. It's really, it's really a propulsive dan- dance jam. And then the guitar brings it to a crescendo eventually. And it, you, could, you could say, well, is it a bit much? I guess it's then it's a skill of how you, if you want to play it at a party, how you'd introduce it into a party. But the crescendo is reminiscent of this kind of, of the ecstatic moment in a gospel record as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really hard to sort of classify. I think and it's because it's I think of it as sort of proto fusion in a way. It's a sort of mm. Latin fusion. It's like Latin mm. jazz mm. infusing sort of acid rock, uh, and therefore very much sort of exemplifying a sort of a sort of Afro psychedelia. But uh, I think tune in, turn on, get down. Hi, uh, it's Tim here from Love Is a Message. Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, Gem and I are loving doing this show, uh, but it's also a lot of work, and we're really grateful to everyone who has become a patron. As this will help us keep doing the podcast uh, for you know, hopefully much much longer. Um, we're really getting going with the patron benefits now, and we're doing extra content for patrons almost every other week. Um, so hopefully that's a, an incentive for some of you to uh, become a patron. If you want to do this, uh, you can head to our Patreon uh, page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash love message pod forward slash posts. And there's also the link in the podcast app. Uh, obviously, we realize that not everyone can afford to become a patron. And the thing that we most want is for everyone to listen in. Uh, we we're totally committed to keeping uh, the podcast, uh, the main part of the podcast, uh, to be aired for free. Uh, but if you can support us, that'd be really incredible. Okay, thanks for that. Back to the show. So, um, so just kind of switch. We would sort of switch. You know, not uh, well, not quite to the Caribbean, but almost via the UK, um, and to continue this this idea of kind of you know. Afro psychedelia, the African diaspora, and these kind of sounds that it kind of generates. Uh, we wanted to talk about uh, Simande, um, and we're going to play um, this record called Dove. So let's let's have a listen to that before we discuss it. Yeah, 
Yes, yeah, so Samande were this uh, this band that formed uh, in the UK uh, as a sort of funk, as a very kind of unusual funk fusion outfit um, with members coming from various kind of uh, uh, Caribbean islands, uh, Guyana, Jamaica, St. Vincent among them. Uh, there was a, a, definitely a Rastafarian kind of uh, angle um, uh, within their within their sound, and they brought these diverse strands of kind of, of different uh, sounds already in circulation together, and including so funk and um, soul music, some R and B elements of jazz. Definitely, there's some reggae elements there, and some rock elements as well. Um, uh, elements of West Indian folk. Um, the band's name, uh, Simande, derives uh, from a calypso word for dove, um, which is also the name of the track we've just listened to. And on this debut album, uh, there's, a, there's an image of a dove, which of course symbolizes peace and love. Dove, it, dove itself is, the, is, is, uh, is notably kind of sort of psychedelic, I think. Um, it's got this kind of very open, kind of quite jazzy drums, sparse use of horns. Um, there's kind of a lot of kind of reverb. Uh, it's very spatialized, uh, and this and this kind of use of the, this kind of uh, really interesting guitar work as well. But again, it's kind of within. It's very much located within this mix. Um, provides a sense of journey. <clears throat> I mean, Dove is a is a track I you know I play when i'm djing and i think um yeah it is it definitely is for me it is clearly self-consciously really sort of allying itself with california it's of acid rock i mean they're obviously listening to that um mm. and they're bringing they're bringing to it a sort of a caribbean rhythmic sensibility which makes it sound like it's being recorded for a dance floor i think it's mm. it's one of the things that always strikes me it's, it's one of the earliest of these sort of um it's one of the earliest of these sort of guitar-based instrumental tracks that um, that do sort of work on a dance floor quite well. I mean, like Love Revelation that we played, like some Hendrix, like uh, some Grateful Dead. But it's the earliest one that always sounds to me like it's been recorded in a studio and consciously or otherwise, it's been, you know, it, it's not re- it's not just trying to capture the feeling of a live performance. It sounds like it's sort of intentionally supposed to work on a dance floor. Um, Maybe it's something about the production stays very controlled and very you know very rhythmic even with, with its kind of you know its crescendos and its falling backs the nature of the narrative in this track for me is, is quite similar to what will emerge as the sort of type of narrative you get in sort of 12-inch disco uh, records over the next few years whereas usually there's more sort of repetition and it's a bit more cyclical. It's a bit less just building up to sort of a big, a big climax, if you, which is more typical of sort of uh, instrumental rock tracks, I think. You know, it has this sort of deliberately hypnotic quality as well as being sort of exciting. That's part of what I'm getting at as well, I think. In the way often it sort of sounds, even though instrumentally it's not, somehow in the arrangement it always feels quite ahead of its time to me. And for me, this this is why you know for me, Samande is much more. You know, they are, yeah. They, I mean, they they they've got sort of you know Caribbean origins, but I think it's I think it's drawing more on sort of jazz and, and acid rock. But it's partly why it's so unique. I mean, we've played Ossibia before, and they're often mentioned alongside Ossibia, 
And my understanding is they, they, they were all sort of part of this milieu of, you know, of black students or sort of young professionals in, in London, which was a bit, which was socially quite diff- a bit different from this kind of more working class milieu that reggae was circulating through. So that's always been my understanding. And I think it, in a way it's more sort of resonant with some, with some sort of African music at the time as well. And, and well, we think we should talk about some African music. Yeah, I think we should, absolutely. So uh, we're going to also play uh, King Sané Ade and his African Beats. Um, and the record we're going to play um, it runs pretty much for the entire side of a record, um, side one. The, the album is, is kind of, is, is a bit of a, has a bit of an oblique title. It's volume 12, the original synchro system movement. And I have, I don't know, much about volumes one to eleven. Um, haven't really, haven't been able to find so they out. They exist. Volumes I don't one to think, eleven. I don't I've know never if been they clear. do. I don't know if they do. I haven't been able to. <laughs> it's not a very good parallel, but I think uh, Larry Levan's first Salsol remix album uh, was called Volume Two, and it <laughs> created this mystique about well, where was Volume <laughs> One, and it just never existed. They just decided to begin at Volume Two, but vol- Volume Twelve. Is kind of a is 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 I don't know if there's what where the other eleven volumes might be. Uh, it does seem as though some of them might have emerged. The other thing to note is I think this is I mean King Sanayade had been kind of playing, uh, you know, been working as a musician for quite some time before uh, he released this album. But um, when I went onto Discogs to try and start listening to King Sanayade's back catalogue, uh, partly prompted by David playing uh, this this track, 365 is my number, uh, slash The Message, which is one of David's kind of you know favourite records from the early 1980s. It's a King Sanayade and his African Beats record. Uh, and I love that record. And I wanted to kind of hear some, see what King Sanayade recorded earlier. And I went to the very top of you know his Discogs kind of catalogue, uh, his release, releases. And this is pretty much, I think this is the first one from what I can remember. And I did go out and buy it. And um, I absolutely fell in, fell in love with this particular record. It remains one of my favourite albums. And so this is just spinning out. It's kind of some slight mystery as to kind of what was going on before it. Um, and the other thing to kind of, I guess, to mention is that King King Sanayade is, um, is kind of, is, is considered to be the kind of, you know, what, perhaps the key pioneer of what came to be known as juju music. Well, the other thing is to draw attention to this kind of this idea that it was called the synchro system movement. Juju music was bringing lots of different kind of elements together. I tried to do, I did do a little bit of quick research into this before the show. And there is this, the only book that I was able to track down on it is by this guy, Christopher Waterman, Juju, a social history and ethnography of an African popular music. And he describes Juju, and I'll just kind of quote, quote this as a really short quote. He describes Juju as a melding of deep Yoruba praise, singing and drumming, guitar techniques from soul music, Latin American dance rhythms, church hymns, and country and Western melodies, pedal steel guitar licks, and Indian film music themes. Um, so this idea of like you know, there's this kind of idea. There's an element of there's an element of bricolage here, and um, I think 
uh, Waterman is a, he's a, either an anthropologist or an ethnomusicologist. I think it was an anthropologist who was looking into music, and that's kind of what ethro, ethnomusicology sort of became, as far as I'm aware. And he's interested in this idea of syncretism. Um, and again, I'll just one more little quote from him, because I think it's interesting. Uh, he concludes on sort of syncretism, that modernity and tradition may be mutually dependent rather than opposed processes, that Western technology can catalyze the expression of indigenous values, and the images of deep cultural identity may be articulated and negotiated through syncretic cosmopolitan forms. So it's really interesting, this kind of this use of syncretism here, I think. So there's a lot going on there. It's really interesting. I mean, just to talk a bit about the record. Well, let, let's hear let's hear the record. Call me, Danny, that's my number. Tell me anything you want from me. Only you have to give your love to me. Okay, well, I mean, I say let's hear the record. That's kind of, we you know, this is a, it takes up pretty much the entire side of an album. Um, and it's, I, as I say, this is really a real i really love this record it's very easy to get lost in it it sounds it's first of all it sounds very unusual there was something about that recording studio there's almost no information on the on the album as to the provides you know information about the, the details of you know instrumentation the recording studio uh, that i've been able to dig out anyway not yet but it's basically the rep music is kind of organized around this very pronounced bass and some, you know, different percussive elements that form the heart of the instrumentation. Uh, and then you have King Saniade's uh, guitar, which he tunes alternatively. And these voices, which seem, seem to be very processed uh, and sort of, you know, have this kind of call and response kind of interplay between them. And then out of the blue, sort of introduce these kind of sirens. <laughs> so it's quite, it's very spatialized. It's very, 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 very hypnotic. There's moments where it's quite sort of surreal and, and kind of unusual. It lasts almost the whole of the side. It's very, it's very prayer-like. Uh, it's very kind of lulling, um, but it, re- it reaches these kind of crescendos, these kind of so these kind of circular kind of renditions that kind of that kind of intensify. Yeah, it's in, it's really it's trance music, really. Mm-hmm. Um, that's um, it's interesting that we're playing this now because it's. This is, as you said, this is quite early example of his work, and it's his music from the early eighties for me, in particular, from his album that was called Juju Music. That is really um, is very obviously sort of psychedelic. I mean, in just in, in sonic terms, it has all these kind of processed guitars and stuff. It's very, it's very trippy, and um, people are always kind of you know surprised. It's it's one of those Juju Music, which is not the record we're talking about, I know, but it's one of those records that people who don't know it hear it the first time often struggle to place, like when it was recorded. Like it could be really new; it could have been any time. I mean, this sounds more specifically like it belongs to this moment in the early seventies to me. And it's, but I think you're right; it does really prefigure that sort of you know more self-consciously, more self-evidently sort of psychedelic uh, sound with it with as you, exactly as you say, this spatiality and this kind of trance-like quality. I mean, it's, incre- it's sort of extraordinary because it's for me, it sort of it retains a certain density while also somehow being very spacious. And that is really extraordinary. 
And yeah, it does end up being really mesmeric. And there's, I think this is like the first, but not the last of a, of the, of a, a number of these kind of, uh, fantastic kind of African records from the 70s that have this that do have this kind of trance-like quality but while also being you know they're not trying to do sort of in, you know traditional indigenous music they're doing something very new it's a bit like the sense I have listening to you know Indian music if, with the there's a real kind of weight to this there's a, there's an organic tradition here which although it produces new things all the time you know, it's producing this music which is new and it's drawing on multiple influences from around the world you also you do have a sense that this is in in some way this is part of a centuries old sort of continuous tradition, which has produced just a level of sort of confidence. There's an incredible sort of musical confidence that we, I always seem to hear in this this kind of stuff, and a, a, and a sort of authority which I just find incredibly impressive. Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture. This is love is the message. So. We've talked a bit about reggae and we could do, and probably will do, you know, whole dedicated shows about that. But obviously, I mean, in its way, I mean, reggae is, you know, the the key Jamaican development and one of the key global developments of this period that we're talking about, the first half of the 70s. And reggae is obviously, to sort of call back to the beginning of the show, reggae is is a gospel music in a sense it is you know it, it's a music which associates itself directly with a, a a religious tradition rastafarianism which is a sort of variant of a millenarian christianity i mean it's it's a it's a sort of it's a version of christianity mixed with the uh, pan-africanism of marcus garvey you know the belief in a kind of in sort of global solidarity for the african diaspora um the ideal of returning to Africa, which for Garvey and his um, colleagues in the early 20th century was essentially a sort of nationalist movement. It, it wasn't a sort of anti-modern movement. It was a it was a way for black people to liberate themselves and fully inhabit modernity. It was the idea of going back to Africa and kind of modernising Africa, actually. And then within Rastafarianism, you know, the return to Africa becomes associated with the story of the, the you know, the, Jewish peoples, you know, the children of Israel's journey to the promised land in in the Bible, and you know, the, all, all the I mean, Rastafarianism includes all these all these different uh, elements, like you know, the belief that Haile Selassie, that um, you know, ruler of Ethiopia was the second coming of Jesus, and all kinds of things. And there are m- multiple variants and, and permutations of it, and. Yeah, as many commentators have pointed out, you know, for many participants in Rastafarianism at the time and subsequently, you know, the, the theological and metaphysical specifics are less important than the sense that this is a both a form of spirituality which sort of makes sense, particularly makes sense to people who who feel like they're not members of a social elite, they're working class, you know, they're black or even, you know, in some cases not black, kind of working class people, or they're people who are you know, don't sit easily with even the kind of forms of established uh, religion that we've been talking about on the show today. And also it is a way of giving voice to sort of political feelings. It's a way of giving voice to sort of the political aspirations for a way of life which would be, you know, beyond, outside of, escaping from, superior to, that made available by racial capitalism. And there are countless examples we could give, but... The track I thought I would play today is a track which is very mysterious, really. Um, it's a track by a vocal by a group called the Nairobi Sisters, 
and the track is called Promised Land. Uh, I think it was first released in 75. Uh, I have tried and tried, and I've asked some people, but I haven't been able, I've never been able to find out anything about this group. Um, but I only know about the record because uh, somebody, the dub of the record got reissued as part of some some record that got issued a couple, about four years ago and then I thought it was kind of interesting and I looked for the original with the vocal and I found it uh, and it's a fantastic tune it's a tune which you know the tune is called Promised Land and it is basically just like a lot of reggae and this is also, also calling back a bit to that love track and its title you know it specifically evokes the book of revelations and the idea that you know the idea that you know at some point in the future you know the world is going to change, and some and the yeah, the evil will suffer, and the righteous will be justified. Um, so the lyric is kind of you know the lyric says what a glorious day you know what a glorious day that will be, but it also says you know that there's going to be you know some people are going to pay and suffer. It, it implies, um, but it's a really it's a tremendously affecting record. It's a really good so it's a really good example of a record where I don't really I can't really endorse the actual cosmological worldview being expressed on it but it's very powerful and it's very powerful just as an evocation of hope for a better world and a world in which our oppressors will be overturned and overthrown so uh and in terms of the production you know it's very effective it's very it's it's fairly unique uh example it's a very unique example sort of you know this very very interesting balance between a fairly convent a sort of roots reggae you know heaviness in the bass and a, and a bit of very uh, prominent and quite clear sort of female vocal i don't don't think i don't know of anything quite like it and the other things i know that i like it are all a bit later as well so a really sort of a extraordinary can we describe this as part as a, as an example of afro psychedelia well i think in the very expanded sense that we're now using the term that such that it sort of includes gospel utopianism and the millenarian utopian spirituality that it expresses yeah i think we can uh, see it as a, as yet another sort of permutation of what we're calling afro psychedelia <laughs> psychedelic is about you know altering your your consciousness and your mind then um you know then the ways of kind of experience you know trying to do this within a kind of religious context um open up an awful lot of music that we might not have thought about uh previously in these terms but they probably do do belong there i mean one you know we could get into the into this like you know and i don't think we should do this now but we could sort of start to ask the question whether, you know, maybe, you know, on some level, is all music psychedelic? Yes, um, yeah. Basically. Well, that well, there's that whole tradition that goes back to Plato, runs through St. Augustine, informs the, the, the Puritans and the radical wing of the Protestant church, which would say yes, and that's mm. why it's bad. That's mm. the trouble mm. with it. Mm. You know, it does, you know, music enters our bodies and it does something to us, though, whether we like it or not. It changes our kind of, you know, 
you know, consciousness. The way that, uh, you know, our consciousness. consciousness uh, well, it's our, our physicality, our experience of our bodies, as and our experience of our consciousness. Absolutely. Yeah. And then here you have something that is aiming to actually do that. You know, it's deliberately. It's not even accidental. It's deliberately using music in this way. So, absolutely, I think it belongs in in this show. I think it's a, it's a great record. And finally, well, we can't. We can't do two programs, whole programs, about Afropsychedelia without talking about the band that most obviously and explicitly identified themselves as engaging in what we could call an Afropsychedelic project. Parliament Funkadelic, uh, the band led by George Clinton, you know, just the name Funkadelic, which they adopted. It was Parliament first, then Funkadelic, wasn't it? Mm, um, so. but it's basically the same band uh, they, and Funkadelic I mean they very explicitly saw themselves as taking inspiration from Jimi Hendrix and basically and saying they wanted to do with funk music what Jimi Hendrix had done with rock music so um, well I mean maybe the most famous and the most the record that has the strongest affinity with things like uh, Revelation by Love and Dove by Simande and lots of, uh, sort of West Coast acid rock would be the classic um, instrumental track, Maggot Brain, uh, which a lot of people will be familiar with. But the track, um, in some ways, uh, the most important track for us to talk about here would be the 1975 track, uh, Mothership Connection or Star Child. It's sort of given both titles on the album Mothership Connection. <laughs> Put a glide in your stride and a dip in your hip and come on to the mothership. Loose boot, doing the fun. Hustle on over here. Mothership Connection is often cited as the exemplary sort of document of Afrofuturism, which we mentioned in the last show, and I think we'll talk about more in other shows. Afrofuturism is a set of aesthetic tropes which get manifest in forms of literature, some cinema, some art, but especially music, which sort of celebrate a, a synthesis between Afro-diasporic aesthetics and sort of science fiction, futurology. And there's a whole debate to be had about whether, you know, Afrofuturism is the, is a useful term. I think there's an interesting, interesting, when we were talking about this record and making the notes, we talked about how really this does seem, it's hard, in some ways this record isn't really psychedelic to us in the way that all the other things we've talked about here are, in that it isn't really about a kind of achieving a sort of transcendent state. It's more about achieving a sort of imminent state, to use the philosophical term, a state of presence, a state of being in the moment. I think it does, you know, I think all of their music, and this is a good example, it does it does celebrate collectivity. You know, it's very much the sound of a band and it's encouraging people dancing together. It's very much the sound of sort of collective joy. It's very playful and childlike. And of course, playfulness and, and childlikeness were important parts of psychedelic culture for many people. Um, not so, I mean, it's, I think it's probably striking, you know, they're not like, 
just it's, I think this is as much as anything our personal tastes, isn't it? You know, we're I often say, you know, I'm a sort of classical acid head in the in the style of the early Leary or something. I like I love Indian music. I do a lot of yoga. You know, I, I like my psychedelia to be psychedelia to be quite self consciously consciousness raising. But you know, for other people. You know, childishness, childlikeness has, has been historically always part of that experience. Now, I remember the way in which in the early 90s, sort of rave culture had all these kind of images drawn from sort of childish, you know, cartoons that we'd all grown up with. Like the magic roundabout was really popular. This mm-hmm. British kids um, sort of animated show from the 70s. And that sort of childishness, that sort of childlikeness is is you know part part of, sort of psychedelic culture as well. And 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 the and I think there is something quite radical. I mean, what always seems to be very radical about funkadelic is they bring this kind of self consciously multicolored, self consciously quite camp, um, playful and uh, and childlike sensibility. They bring it to bear on funk, which up to this point, and we've discussed this on the show a couple of times, has been very sort of serious. You know, James Brown and then the kind of, you know, militant funk associated with sort of Black Power, etc. It's all pretty serious. It's all pretty macho, to be honest, in the way it presents itself. Uh, and these guys are very self-consciously sort of playing with that and to some extent making fun of it, I think, and deliberately subverting it. And they're subverting its kind of heroic quality. I mean, you talked about the guitar. We talked about the guitar hero as a sort of figure of macho individualism. I mean, James Brown is sort of, you know, he's, he's not playing guitar. He's not a virtuosic musician, but he's very much the hero of the show. Whereas I th- and I think Funkadelic, they do really very deliberately, both in terms of the arrangement of the music and the way they present themselves vi- visually in these sort of absurdist costumes, they do really try to subvert that in a way which ends up being quite radical and 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 in a, and in a, in a different way, you know, quite psychedelic. I think it's what, there's something about this music that's kind of hard, as you say, the, the radical imminence more than I think it's more. So maybe it's sort of more ra- radical than it is with James Brown. I think it's easier to lose yourself to a James Brown record to get lost in its groove than in a George Clinton, which is kind of in, a lot more kind of like watching a kids' TV. You know, it's a lot more like a kids' TV show. There's a lot more silly voices coming in and and disruption and kind of like a kind of you know like a food food fight is going on around the table or something. I'm not sure that's not the best metaphor. So I think it's I think there's something going on where there's there's a, there's this playfulness is happening, but it doesn't kind of necessarily translate into, let's say, this kind of you know a gospel aesthetic or a, or an alternative kind of funk matrix the way you can you can more easily like lose yourself. I mean, it's just the other thing to mention is the is the use of this kind of this kind of the metaphor of space, uh, which is obviously very pre- prominent in in the, you know. George Clinton and Mothership Connection. There's lots of, you know, there was, there's lots of kind of, it's a big time for, you know, I think we'll, we'll talk about this in, a, in an episode for, that we record for the patrons maybe, but there's a lot going on in terms of, you know, space exploration in the late 1960s and the 1970s. Everyone's, you know, lots of people are interested in kind of, you know, traveling to the moon, travel, you know, traveling to Mars. Uh, exploring space, new frontiers, which is also kind of a, you know, it's a kind of chimes with the kind of, an, you know, a US sensibility as well, um, arguably. 
Um, and there's just the otherworldness that kind of, you know, the Afrofuturism obviously it does explore as well, does dip into, of, of space as being a, a place where, you know, that allows for, you know, a, a certain type of freedom and a kind of an alter, an, you know, a, you know, a, a rejection of this of the simple idea that we should just aspire to, kind of, you know, assimilate assimilation into kind of, you know, the U.S. version of kind of democracy and humanity because that had been refused for so long to African American citizens and, and and exploring kind of space metaphors and imagery is one way out of a fun way to kind of re. re, re reconstitute what the african-american experience might be i think that's right and i think that does there's a certain continuity there even with gospel in that the people all people are looking for ways of imagining something beyond the limitations of of a highly racist form of modern capitalism and that's to some extent that's what afro psychedelia is all about and it's why it remains such a powerful aesthetic resource to this day i think (laughs) 